Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the incredible joy and privilege it is to be recipients of your very words to humanity, specifically to your people. And we ask, Father, that in this hour, in this preaching, that, that we would not take that for granted. We're so distracted by so many things in this world, our jobs, the news headlines, our social media, our own families, even good things that you've blessed us with. But we ask, Lord, that right now, that you would make us fully attentive on you and on what you would say to us. Change us, Lord, in our seats by the working of your Spirit in us, through Christ. Amen. In the Christian life, suffering is guaranteed. Suffering is guaranteed. Here's just this small sampling of the scriptures that demonstrate to us that suffering is, is a normal and unexpected, unexpected, not unexpected, part of the Christian life. It's expected. Here's five verses. Psalm 34, 19 says that many are the afflictions of the righteous. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have tribulation. Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, the sufferings of this present time. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And finally, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And there's more. And we had to fight the temptation to put all of the relevant verses right here in the introduction, but you get the idea. Suffering is a normal part of the Christian life, and it is to be expected. Should we expect to see an increase in our suffering in the coming days? Well, it really doesn't matter what eschatological position you hold. What it seems like, at least in these coming months and years is that we will in fact see an increase in suffering for the sake of Christ, at least in our context. Increasingly, Christians are becoming the bad guy in your sight of the average American. Here are some recent posts that were trending on social media in just the last several weeks. And I didn't have to dig for these, okay? They were right at the top when I searched for Christians. Why are conservative Christians so good at being religious hypocrites? I have five of these. That was number one. Number two, conservative Christians have been abusing women at Planned Parenthood for years. Don't let them have a peaceful Sunday. Take the protests to them. Number three, time to make some Christians upset. Number four, Conservative Christians don't give a bleep about the Bible. They want full control over every aspect of your life. And fifth, in honor of today's Supreme Court ruling, I just want to say bleep Christianity. And when we say they're trending, 
We're talking tens of thousands of positive responses to these posts. On one hand, it's, it's funny that Christianity gets singled out. And for example, on, on abortion, which seems to be driving a lot of this conversation right now, most Hindus and Mormons and at least some Muslims, Buddhists, and Jews are in agreement with us that you shouldn't do that. There are even some atheists who stand against abortion, and yet the bad guy, the scapegoat, is the Christian church. So on one hand, it's a strange phenomenon, but on the other hand, it really shouldn't surprise us because deep down, we know that they know that what the Bible says about everything is true, but they absolutely hate it. It shouldn't surprise us that the world lashes out at Christianity in particular. Those who would rather be deceived despise truth. So the way that things are going, at least in the short term, in my myopic point of view, my nearsightedness, it seems that we, we definitely need to brace ourselves for more suffering. But really, we shouldn't even wait on current events to be aware of that and be prepared for it. Again, suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. It has been that way for the past 2,000 years all over the world. It's been that way for God's people for even longer than that, and it will be that way until Christ returns. For the rest of July, we're going to, be, we're going to start going through the book of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter has been designed by God to help us to suffer well as a Christian. And then when Pastor Rollo eventually goes off to training, we'll pick the series back up. This series can aptly be titled, Suffering Well for Christ. Suffering Well for Christ. And the reason why is because the melodic line, the recurring theme throughout the book of 1 Peter is just that, suffering well for Christ. And don't worry, even though this introduction has been thus far depressing, neither this book nor this sermon will be. Today's sermon, which is titled Suffering with a Living Hope, Suffering with a Living Hope, is probably going to be the most exciting, encouraging sermon of this whole series, just to manage your expectations. And it's going to be the idea to which we anchor ourselves as we proceed through the rest of 1 Peter. What we hear today is absolutely key when it comes to suffering well for Christ, because While suffering is guaranteed, so is our joy. So is our hope. The aim of this sermon is to help you to see your suffering in light of your present salvation and your future hope. Your present salvation and your future hope. To see our suffering in light of those things. And God willing, we'll walk out of here today encouraged and hopeful. So, let's look at these three concepts from our passage. Our present salvation, our future hope, and our suffering. Let's start with the first one. Our present salvation. Our present salvation. And for this, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 2 and then 8 through 12. And really, we're going to spend the majority of our time on this one point. The beauty of greetings in the beginning of each of the letters that we see in the New Testament is that although they, they, they follow a common form of writing a letter at that time, the apostles never seem to waste their introductions. 
They don't just throw away their intros. The opening words of each letter always seem to be meaningful, always relevant to what they're about to say in the rest of the letter. And so in Peter's opening words in this letter, we immediately get to behold the glory of our present salvation. Verse 1, we read Peter. We see that Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle just means one who is sent. He was sent out by Christ. He was one of the 12 disciples, one of the more prominent of the disciples. And being one of his disciples, he was now an apostle. Jesus trained them, and then he sent them. And what this means for us is that Peter is writing to his audience, which now includes us, with the authority of Jesus Christ. He is writing this letter with the authority of Jesus Christ. It's Peter's words, it's Peter's thoughts, led by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And though that's the case, it is Christ's message for us today. So, as you listen, behold the message of Jesus Christ to his church. So he writes, as we see in verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are cities uh, throughout an area that was called Asia Minor, which is now in modern-day Turkey. But these cities are listed, interestingly, if you look at a map, they're listed in a clockwise order. And so perhaps what's going on is this letter is being sent out to be passed along, and that's the route that the letter would take as it was being passed along to the various churches in the area. Peter calls them in verse 1, elect exiles of the dispersion. And in calling his audience the elect exiles of the dispersion, he's doing something really cool here. Most of his audience in these cities would probably be Gentile Christians based on where the location was, and yet the congregations would have probably had a mix of both Jews and Gentiles, meaning those of Jewish descent versus those not of Jewish descent. Yet remember that Peter was very much a Jew. He grew up with Jewish culture, Jewish customs. He grew up learning the law and the prophets. His rabbi, Jesus, was a Jew. And Peter uses very Jewish language, but he applies it to the whole church. This is why this is, why this is great. He takes Jewish language and he applies it to the whole church. When you apply this to Israel's history, that phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion, that would evoke memories of Israel's history of being exiled out of the promised land and scattered among the nations. They became dispersed. We Gentiles have been grafted into true Israel. True Israel are those Old Testament Jews who actually believed in the coming Messiah and those New Testament Jews who also trusted in Jesus Christ as that Messiah. And we Gentiles have been grafted into that tree. So all Israel who believed in Jesus Christ, that was true Israel. And all Gentiles who trust in Jesus Christ are grafted in so that we are now all true Israel. We are now one people in God. Therefore, Israel's history is also our history. We inherited their history as being part of God's people. In Peter's calling them elect exiles of the dispersion, he is alluding to past events, 
but he's applying them to his audience's present situation. In our current situation, we are exiles. We're dispersed all over the world, and we are exiles. We don't belong here. Our home is not the United States of America. Our home is not even Earth. Our home is with God in heaven. We are elect exiles, chosen by God from before all time. Verse 2 adds the phrase, according to the foreknowledge of the Father. According to the foreknowledge of the Father. He didn't merely choose us because he looked forward in time and foreknew that we would be chosen. That makes no sense. He chose us when he foreknew us. Like Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's not merely that, that he knew that what we would do and who we would be, and then, then he chose us after he looked at down the corridors of time. It's not that. It's that he actually knew us before we were ever born. He knew us before we ever believed. And it's because of that foreknowledge that, praise God, Jesus will never say about God's elect, I never knew you. Why? Because he has always known us. He has always known us. So our being elect exiles was according to the foreknowledge of the Father, but as Pastor Wallow so wonderfully preached last week, it's not just the Father who saved us, it's not just the Son who saved us, nor just the Holy Spirit, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saved us. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, saved us. It was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, verse 2, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, this is probably not talking about sanctification in the normal way we use the word, but rather in the sense that he, the Holy Spirit, set us apart. Verse 2, he set us apart for obedience to Jesus Christ. So again, you see the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification, the setting apart of us by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus command that we ought to obey? He said in John 6, 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe in him who he has sent. Christ commands that we live for him in faith. But it starts with trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins. In fact, we see in, in verse 2 that the Spirit set us apart not only for obedience to Christ, but also, verse 2, for sprinkling with his blood. And I may bring to mind for you Exodus 24, in that time where God was ratifying the covenant that he was making with Israel. And to ratify that old covenant, animal sacrifices were made to the Lord. Tons of animals were sacrificed. Half of that blood was thrown on the altar, and the other half was sprinkled on the people. This sprinkling sealed God's covenant. It sealed God's promise to the people of Israel. In the new covenant, greater blood has been spilled. It wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. It was the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And all we who have been chosen by God the Father 
and set apart by the Holy Spirit have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, sealing that covenant that he made with us, the promise that he made to us, that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish, but have eternal life. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are an elect exile. You are chosen by God the Father according to his foreknowledge. You are set apart by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You are the recipient of eternal life in Christ. You are loved by Christ, and nothing will separate you from that love. His blood has guaranteed that. If you're not a Christian, then your soul is in danger because you do not at this time have eternal life. Instead, you are currently under the wrath of God for your sins. But if you put your trust in Jesus Christ today, who lived that perfect life that you could not live, who died on the cross for sinners like you, and who rose from the grave conquering sin and death, if you believe in him today, then you will be saved. You will have an eternal life and the eternal love of Jesus Christ. So my plea to you, unbeliever, this morning, trust in him. What a glorious salvation. For we who believe in him, salvation is not just something in the past that we wrote down in the back of our Bible that we look at and say when we got saved. Our salvation is a present reality that fills us with immense love and immense joy. Go down to verse 8. We'll come back to the other verses later. Verse 8. Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. <laughs> this is a blessing that we often overlook. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Remember what the Savior said in Peter's presence to Thomas. John 20, verse 29. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Remember, Thomas didn't believe Jesus rose from the grave until Jesus allowed him to actually touch the holes on his hands and in his side. But he tells Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Have you ever wondered why that's the case? How is it that we who have not seen him yet believe are blessed in an even greater way than Thomas was blessed? It's because we have experienced the incredible work of God in us to take us from blindness to sight, to take us from death to life without even seeing Jesus Christ in the flesh. He did a miraculous work of bringing us from darkness to light, from death to life, without our even seeing Jesus Christ like the apostles did. This faith without sight is a delightful evidence to us of God's mighty work in us. I mean, isn't it absolutely dumbfounding that we believe in this? People look at what we believe and they say that it's an opiate for the masses. They say it's fairy tales. They think we're fools. And Peter even, I'm sorry, Paul even describes it like that. It's the foolishness of God. And yet despite all that, we believe. 
That's God's grace on us, saints. Blessed are we who have not seen and yet have believed. On top of believing, we love him. We love him. We have a genuine love for Jesus Christ. We have a love for him that transcends any other love that we have and experience in this world. And it is a delightful love. If you're a true Christian, loving Jesus is more enjoyable than anything else in the world. There is nothing more enjoyable than the experience of loving Jesus Christ despite not having seen him. Verse 8 continues, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Is that not your experience? I hope it is. Despite having never seen the risen Christ like the apostles did, you love him, you believe in him, and you rejoice in him with inexpressible joy. There is nothing that could happen to us in the world that would take away our love for Jesus and our inexpressible joy in him. It's inexpressible because there's no joy like it. There is no joy comparable to the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's, Peter writes, filled with glory. That is, it's a glorious joy. Our joy in Christ is glorious. It's glorious because the object of our joy, Jesus Christ, is glorious. The intensity of our joy is glorious. The permanence of our joy is glorious. And the accompanying salvation is glorious. Look at verse 9, how Peter ties that in. Verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This love-filled, inexpressible, and glorious joy-filled faith, which was given to us by God, has caused us to obtain the salvation of our souls. Peter continues to describe this salvation in verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. This seems to echo what Jesus was saying in John 5.39 when he says to the scribes and Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Everything that was prophesied in the Old Testament was bearing witness of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, here called the Spirit of Christ, foretold the Messiah's sufferings and the subsequent glories through the prophets. And we see that in the Old Testament that it foretells that the Messiah would be born of a virgin that he would be God with us, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that just like Israel, he would come out of Egypt, that a voice of one calling in the wilderness would announce his coming, that he would bear our infirmities and diseases, that the nations would put their hope in him, that he would even ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, that he would be rejected, I'm running out of fingers, that he the shepherd would be struck down, and that we will see him sitting at the right hand of God 
and coming in the clouds. They prophesied that this would happen. They knew that it would happen, but they didn't know exactly when it would happen or to exactly whom it would happen. Verse 12 says as much. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What they had prophesied, what they had believed, they believed what they prophesied, and it was counted to them as righteousness. The reason why those prophets are in heaven is because they trusted in the same Messiah that we trust in. He had just not come yet. But their prophecies have now been revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit sent from heaven descended upon the apostles and he gave to them what they have now given to us, the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is a salvation that has even astounded the angels. I love this part of verse 12. He describes it at the end of verse 12 as things into which angels long to look. (laughs) Things into which angels long to look. Angels are sitting with us in the audience of the theater of God's glory. And they've been waiting for this salvation. They had been waiting for thousands of years. Just put yourself in the shoes of an, uh, the wings of an angel. Put yourself from an angel's perspective watching history unfold. Time and time again, it seems like God's promises cannot be kept. His people disobey. His kings fail. His priests fail. His prophets are ignored. His people are exiled. And even when they're brought back, they continue to be rebellious. And then suddenly, there are 400 years of silence. No new prophecy. God's not speaking to Israel. Just silence. But then, in the womb of a virgin appears the Christ. Oh, the deafening applause that must have filled the heavens when they saw that. This is our present salvation. It had been a long time coming from a human perspective, maybe even from angels' perspectives, but it is now here. All those who trust in Jesus Christ are forgiven all of their sins. But beyond that, they are given a love for him and an inexpressible and glorious joy in him. Part of how we suffer well as Christians is by remembering this present salvation. Hebrews 13, 6 says this, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Romans eight thirty one. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I recently heard a quote from a theologian named Richard Sibbs. They may kill us, but they cannot hurt us. The worst they can do is send us to heaven and make us partakers of that we desire most. What can they do to us? We have Jesus Christ. We have him now, and we have him forever. So we see our suffering in light of our present salvation. 
we also see it in light of, number two, our future hope. Our future hope. Let's go back to verse three. Verse three. So after Peter greets his audience and blesses them, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've said this before from this pulpit, but just by way of review. When you see bless God, that means praise God. It means speak well of God, to ascribe goodness to God. So praise God. And here's why Peter wants to praise him. Next part of verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember, we did nothing to deserve God's favor. All right? We did nothing. If anything, all we ever did our whole lives was show why we don't deserve God's favor. His actions toward us are all according to his great mercy. And according to his great mercy, Peter writes in verse 3, he has caused us to be born again. Listen to Paul on this subject in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He took us from death to life. He took us out of death and into life. And he caused us to be born again to something. To what? Look at the verse, verse 3. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. One theologian writes that this means the hope of life. At the same time, there seems to be an implied contrast between the hope fixed on the incorruptible kingdom of God and the fading and transient hopes of man, end quote. In other words, everyone has hope. Everyone's hoping for something. But everyone's hope outside of Christ is a dead hope. They have no assurance that what they want to happen will happen. But for we who are born again, we have been born again to a living hope. We were born again to this living hope, verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead through the resurrection, of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Christ's rising from the dead, he has revealed to us three things, at least three things. Here's three I came up with. First, that his sacrifice on our behalf was accepted. When he rose from the grave, he revealed to us that his sacrifice on our behalf was accepted. Second, that he conquered sin and death. And third, 
one that we don't hear as often, that we will be imperishable like him. We will be imperishable like him. And the reason why it is so important that we become imperishable, do you know why? Do you know why it's so important that you actually become imperishable? It's this. It's that without that imperishability, we will not receive our final inheritance. Let me say that again. Unless we are made imperishable, we will not receive our final inheritance, which is why it's great news for us that Jesus was resurrected because he's the first fruits of our own resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 53 says this. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 53. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, read, die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. That passage deserves its own sermon. And I had the privilege of preaching it the last Sunday of 2019, if you want to go back and listen. The very last Sunday of 2019, the sermon was titled, Why We Look Forward to the Resurrection, in case you want to unpack that passage some more. But the gist of it is this. When God created, I'm sorry, when God creates the new heavens and the new earth, we cannot dwell there with these perishable bodies. We need new bodies. And part of the good news of Jesus Christ is that for all we who believe in him, when he returns, when that victorious trumpet sounds, then all believers who have died will be risen and given new, resurrected, and imperishable bodies. And all the Christians who happen to be alive at that time will also be immediately transformed to have said imperishable bodies. And once we have our imperishable bodies, then we can then receive our imperishable inheritance, which we'll describe in just a moment. But Christ's resurrection is proof positive that we ourselves will be raised like him. That's why we are born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through his resurrection. We are born again, or the living hope, through that resurrection, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What is this inheritance about which Peter speaks? This inheritance is eternal life together with him, as truly living people made of both body and spirit in the place that he has prepared for us. Let me read that again. Eternal life together with him as truly living people made of both body and spirit in the place that he has prepared for us. Now the question might arise, why is it so significant that we have bodies in eternity? Why can't we just be content being saved spirits in the presence of God forever? That would be great. The answer to that 
is that right now when we die, something terrible happens. Our spirits are unnaturally separated from our bodies. It wasn't meant to be this way. Our spirits are separated from our bodies and we suddenly become incomplete. Why? Because a human being is not merely body, nor is he merely spirit. A human being is body and spirit. In that way, when somebody dies, death has had a victory. Death has caused a sting. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 calls death the last enemy to be destroyed. Death is an enemy, and destroyed it shall be. How will death be destroyed? Through the reuniting of our displaced spirits to new and glorified bodies to live forever and ever. Christians who have departed, who have gone to be with the Lord, they are in one sense alive and well. They are fully conscious in the glorious presence of our Savior. But in another sense, they're still dead. They really are dead. Their bodies have been buried in the ground or turned to ash. In that sense, death has had a victory over them. But that victory will be reversed. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-55 says this, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, in other words, when we get our new bodies, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Whatever victory death had on a believer when a believer died is reversed when that believer rises from the grave with an imperishable body. So this inheritance is imperishable. Every other inheritance in the world will eventually perish, but our inheritance is imperishable. Our inheritance is also, verse 4 says, undefiled. Undefiled. It's pure. Our inheritance is pure and it will forever be pure. This is in contrast to the inheritance that Israel received in the Old Covenant when they got the Promised Land. They received their inheritance once they conquered and lived in the Promised Land, but it became defiled. Jeremiah 2.7 says this, And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, in other words, I gave you your inheritance. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Their inheritance became defiled. But our inheritance will be forever undefiled. Our inheritance is also, verse 4 says, unfading. It will never fade away. It is, verse Four says, kept in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven for you. Who is keeping it? The one who is guarding our inheritance is God himself. And so we can have confidence that it will be there for us when it's time. This is true for you, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
This verse is immensely encouraging. Shall we read it again? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's why this is encouraging. In order for us to receive this inheritance, in order for us to receive this future outworking of salvation, we need to keep believing to the end. Colossians 1.23 says that Christ will present you wholly unblemished in his presence if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. I heard in a sermon recently that perseverance is a necessary fruit of salvation. You need to make it to the very end. You need to keep believing to the very end in order to receive this inheritance. And that sounds scary. Or is it just me? But we don't continue to believe by our own power. Look at verse 5. Whose power are we guarded by? We are, verse 5 says, being guarded through faith. So yes, we need to keep having faith all the way to the very end in order to receive our inheritance. Faith is the means through which we're saved. But we're not ultimately the ones that keep us believing. Thanks be to God. Working backwards in verse 5, we see through faith we are being guarded by what? By God's power. It's not going to be because we kept ourselves believing by our own power. And that's good news for us because John MacArthur was right when he said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. That's true for me. It's true for you. No, thank God it's not by our power. Thank God we don't keep ourselves saved, thank God. No, we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith. By his power, we will keep believing to the very end. And the reward for that God-powered faith is in verse 5. A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have a present salvation already. We covered that in the first part of the sermon. We have salvation. But there is an element of our salvation that is yet to be revealed. Our glorification. When the dead of the redeemed rise from the grave, glorious and victorious, just as our Savior did before us. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will yet be saved. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, that we would see our suffering in light of our present salvation and in light of our future hope. Now, having gone over the lenses through which we should view our suffering, let's now actually consider verse 3, our suffering, our suffering. Verse 6 says this, In this you rejoice, that is, in our living hope you rejoice. He continues in verses 6 and 7, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there are four things that we learn about our suffering in just these two verses. Four things we learn about our suffering. First, it's temporary. 
It's temporary. Peter says, now for a little while. Other translations say, a season. The idea is that it's, our suffering is, is only for a very, very short time. But wait, you say, I'm 80 years old. I've been suffering for 80 years. That's not a short time. We have a lot of people who complain about the events ever since 2020, and they're like, I'm tired of living through world events or something like that, but they don't know what they're talking about. I imagine being a believer in Christ born in 1900, okay? If you were born in 1900, you would have lived through the supposed war to end all wars, which ended up being called World War I. You would have lived through the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, World War II, the nuclear age, the Cold War, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, and so many more world events, not to mention your own personal suffering. That's a lot of suffering. How can anyone say that it's for a little while? How can Paul call it in 2 Corinthians 4.17, a light momentary affliction? Well, all I can tell you is that we'll understand it one day. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we're probably going to look back on our days of suffering as that little while that God had us suffer for his namesake. Our suffering is temporary. In the vast scheme of your eternal life, this is a blink of an eye. It's for a little while. Second, it's necessary. It's necessary. Peter says, if necessary, be comforted, believer, in this, that you will only suffer if and only if God deems it necessary for you to suffer. You will only suffer if God deems it necessary for you to suffer. In other words, your suffering will never be arbitrary. God wastes nothing. And God purposes everything. And if you're one of his, then your suffering is always for your good. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And namely, God purposes our sufferings to make us more like his son. Our suffering is necessary. And third, it's varied. It's varied. Peter says, you have been grieved by various trials. What specifically Peter has in mind, we don't know. And that's, that's probably by design. We know this, that, that Asia Minor, where he's writing to, was a center of emperor worship, worshiping the emperor of Rome. And we know that Christians would be hated and persecuted and killed if they refused to worship the emperor. But Peter masterfully words it to include all kinds of trials that God allows his people to go through. All kinds of trials. And every single bit of varied trials that you're going through is purposeful. It's temporary. And fourth, it's glorifying to God. It's glorifying to God. Read verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when he returns. The purity of gold, you can take a piece of gold and you can test it by fire. If you hold gold to the flame and no dross comes out, no junk comes out, then it shows itself to be pure. It shows itself to be valuable. But in the end, gold is perishable. And though it's precious, it's not as precious as our faith. God allows us to go through trials to test, like gold, the genuineness of our faith. He uses the flame of suffering to rid our faith of dross, and our faith will be shown at the very end to be genuine. And the result of that is praise and glory and honor to the one who has, by his power, guarded us through faith. Someone recently shared with me that that ever since he became a Christian, he has gone through nothing but suffering. 30 years of suffering. And I reminded him that the fact that he is still a Christian, despite all of that suffering, is a miracle. The fact that any of us, despite what we go through, despite the ridicule that we face, the persecution that we endure, the hatred that we absorb, the various trials that we suffer are still Christian is a testimony to the immeasurable power of God at work in us. When we make it through our suffering and we come out with genuine faith and that faith lasts to the very end, it is to the glory of God who guarded us. So what is your suffering today, saint? Whether it's trauma or medical diagnosis or living with a wicked spouse or the death of a loved one or persecution or injustice or spiritual warfare or besetting sin or whatever else you may go through. It's just for a little while. It's necessary for your good, and it will glorify God. And furthermore, it is nothing. Your suffering is nothing compared to the immeasurable worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. It is minuscule compared to the salvation that was purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. Your suffering is light compared to the weight of glory beyond comparison that is awaiting you. Your living hope, your imperishable inheritance, your eternity with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now friends, this is not to minimize your suffering. I'm not downplaying what you're going through or what you will go through. It's to maximize your view of that which is greater than your suffering. And more importantly, he who is greater than your suffering, your delight and your reward, Jesus Christ. We need to see our suffering as intense and as real as it may be in light of our present salvation, our future hope, 
and this incredible God who has adopted us into his family through the blood of his own son. In conclusion, that is easier said than done. But it is, by God's grace, doable. You can view your suffering in the lens of your present salvation and your future hope by God's grace. Well, what are some practical ways that we can grow in these areas? First, trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ. This is the starting point. Again, if you're here and you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, then you don't have present salvation and you don't have future hope. All you have right now is the promise of God's wrath if you don't repent. But, again, even today, you can place your trust in him now. You can turn away from your sins and cling to the one who died for sinners. But this statement is true for both believer and unbeliever alike. Trust in Jesus Christ. Second, remind yourself of how amazing salvation is. you got to remind yourself. Meditate on how deserving of God's wrath you were and how even today you still sin against him. But instead of destroying you, he guards you through faith. Think deeply and intentionally about that regularly. If you're a journaler, journal about it if that helps you. Everybody, pray about it. Thank God always for saving us. The greater that you see your salvation the smaller you'll see your suffering. Third, look to your inheritance. Look to your inheritance. There's a saying out there that, that talks about Christians who are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. It sounds good, right? But it's really a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. The people who are truly heavenly-minded are going to be of the most earthly good because they're going to look at everything in the present in light of the future, meaning they won't be paralyzed with fear. They won't be immobilized by apathy. They will instead be empowered to run hard and fast to the finish line. So be heavenly minded. Don't let people convince you otherwise. Remind yourself of what's coming in the future so that you can rightly deal with the present. And fourth and lastly, remind others of these things. Remind others of these things. That's what I'm doing for you right now, and I hope you're encouraged. And if you are encouraged, then you see the impact of people reminding you of these things, and that's what you should do for others going forward. Talk about God's grace and mercy regularly. Talk about God's grace and mercy more than you talk about COVID, more than you talk about Roe v. Wade. Talk about God's grace and mercy regularly. Talk about his past present, and future glories. One of the best ways that you can help somebody in their suffering is to help them to look past their suffering at the wondrous magnificence of God and his promises. Sermon in a sentence. We are to view our sufferings in light of our present suffering and our future hope. Suffering is guaranteed. It is. But so is our joy so is our hope, and so is our glorious inheritance in Christ. Let's thank him for that. Father, how gracious he